It is such a pleasure to be um, in a place that really feels like home to me and to be opening up the Word of God um, with you this morning. Oak Lawn um, has many memories for me, uh, many of them of causing trouble in the youth, and many of you remember that trouble that I did cause. Um, but it was good. The Lord did a lot um, to teach me about His Word here to teach me about who he was, and to give me a deep and abiding love for you, my fellow brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Um, This morning is special to me in many ways in this week as we're celebrating Christmas together, and I wanted to give a shout out to um, my brother Ryan and his wife Tori. Um, It is such a pleasure to meet my niece Lily. She is beautiful, and uh, Ryan... She's turning all my notions of genetics upside down. I mean, how could someone so cute come from my brother? (laughs) It's just... (laughs) Okay, you're a handsome guy, too. Well, this morning, believe it or not, we are going to be talking about the unexpected. When something just takes you completely off guard, totally makes you look and say, huh, wasn't expecting to see that. I remember a few years back, I was over at one of my friend's house. His name was John. And one of the things that John and I loved to do, because, you know, we were big scholars, is we would sit in front of the television all day and turn our brains to mush. And it just so happened that this particular time, we were sitting down watching a movie that I don't even remember. That's how good it was. Um, When we heard this loud commotion. Now, John's living room had this big picture window that the couch sat in front of. And then you would look and see the television. And there was a guy screaming at the top of his lungs. And he was chugging as hard as he could. And he runs right across the picture window. Okay. That's not typical. Well, suddenly we hear a second scream, and this time there's a woman running, and her hair is completely disheveled, and she's holding a baseball bat in her hand, and she stops right in front of the picture window, holding up the baseball bat like William Wallace about to cry freedom. And instead of crying that, she says, get them! And a pack of six or seven kids run from behind her with wiffle ball bats, golf clubs, baseball bats, and any other kind of object that you would bludgeon someone with, and they do her bidding. Now, as this whole scene plays out in front of my eyes, I remember looking over at my friend John and saying, you know, John, I was really not expecting to see that today. Though maybe I should have. I was in West Virginia at the time. Have you ever had something happened that you just were not expecting at all. The unexpected. Something that just doesn't fall in with the normal patterns of the world. You know, we get used to seeing things happen in a certain sort of way, and then when, you know, a guy runs across the picture window away from his wife and his kids, you just say to yourself, that's not normal. Unless you're in West Virginia. Well, The scriptures have a lot of instances as you're reading through the way that God worked in the history of this world that cause you to just step back for a second and say, 
wow, I was not expecting God to do this in this sort of way. And that's what we're going to see in the text that we're looking at this morning. I would invite you at this time, if you would, open up your Bibles with me, and we'll be looking at Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Um, And as you do that, just put your finger or your bulletin in the Bible and save the place there. This Christmas message that we've heard so much about can actually become normal to us. But the coming of Jesus Christ was anything but normal. In fact, if we were living in this day and age, many of us would stop dead in our tracks and just say to God, I was not expecting that to happen. Let me begin before we get into the scriptures by asking a question. What sort of person would you expect an angel to come and visit? Little facts about angels. In the Old Testament, we see that angels are ministering spirits of God. And as you look at angels, you'll notice that it's not like they occur in every chapter of the Bible. There's there's certain instances where angels come and they have a certain task to accomplish. In fact, in the scriptures, we only know the name of two good angels. We know the name of one bad angel, but two good angels. Michael and Gabriel. And so their special task predominantly when they come on the scene is that they bear a message of importance from God to us, mankind. Working God's saving program in the world. Now, okay, an angel comes. They're bearing a message from God and it's really important and we need to understand it. Who would you expect an angel to come to? I was thinking through this a little bit, and, you know, my mind starts going through the big guns. Maybe the angel should come to the president of the United States of America, and he could call together his cabinet, and he has the capacities and the capabilities and the ability to spread and disseminate this message far and wide. I mean, he could call a media gathering like this, and people would come and they would listen to him. Or maybe it would be one of those prominent media personalities, you know, Oprah or one of them, or 50 million viewers could come and listen. And in Jesus' day, you would expect much the same. Wouldn't an angel want to come to, like, the high priest? Or maybe they would go to the emperor of Rome, because he had the ability to just call the shots. I mean, when he said it, it happened. Surely he could deliver God's message to anyone, anywhere that he wanted to. But that's not what we see when we look at our text today. Let's look together at Luke chapter 1, and we'll be reading from verses 26 to verse 30. Scriptures say this, in the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. 
Now Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. The angel who comes to Mary in this text is Gabriel, the one we had named earlier. In the Bible, Gabriel is mentioned coming only four times. Twice to the prophet Daniel in the book of Daniel. One time to Zechariah, which has taken place earlier in this chapter, to announce the coming of John the Baptist. And now this time, he comes to a virgin named Mary. Now, Gabriel appearing is kind of a big deal in the scriptures. His specific task in the scriptures is to talk about a special new work of God, especially concerning the work with his Messiah. And we'll talk a little bit later about this Messiah and his role in the universe. And here, this Gabriel is appearing not to a king, not to an important priest, not to someone from the ruling class. No. He is appearing to a nobody from nowhere. Mary had a couple of strikes against her in this society. First strike, it's a patristic society. She was a woman. She didn't have all the rights and the privileges that a man in this society would have. In addition to that, Mary is betrothed, but she is not married yet. So she doesn't even have the rights and the prestige that come along with being married. And not only those, those personal strikes against her, she came from a town called Nazareth. Now one commentator was talking about this town, and he says it's most likely that Luke mentions this region Galilee because most of his readers would have no idea where a town like Nazareth was located. When I'm talking about nowhere here, I'm talking about back of the woods, podunk, nowhere. You look at John chapter 1, verse 46, Nathaniel is confronted with the person of Jesus and where he's from, and he just asks the question, can anything good come from Nazareth? And the applied answer is, no. It's back of the woods. So Mary just doesn't seem to fit the bill. Here you have an angel coming, and we would expect him to come to someone great and prestigious, but instead, we come to a person who is a nobody from nowhere with only really one credential that Luke presents to us. She comes from the family line of David, and really, it's only attached to the husband, Joseph, in this passage. We know in other passages that Mary herself was as well. And yet, the angel comes to her and says, Greetings. You who are favored, not just favored, but highly favored. The Lord is with you. That phrase, to be highly favored, is an important phrase when we're studying this passage. Um, it's especially important when we consider the significance of Mary. Uh, you may be aware, but over church history, Mary's nature has been much talked about. 
Is she in some way um, in special standing with God? Does she have a sin nature? All these questions have been asked, and this particular passage at times has been referenced to ask that question. Favor signifies this, that God has graciously chosen someone for a special task. And so when we're looking here um, or in the scriptures, we see other instances of this, like Noah, who was spared from the flood, or Gideon, who was chosen to be a judge, or Hannah, who was to have the child Samuel, or David, when he was given the Ark of the Covenant. And so when we consider the person of Mary, she's not unique in her nature, who she intrinsically is. She's unique in her role. Gabriel is announcing that you have a very special task that is laid before you. And God favors you in this sort of way. But let's not miss the point. An angel comes and announces this special favor to a nobody from nowhere. It's so unexpected that the scriptures tell us in verse 28 that Mary just stops talking. And she wonders what all of this could mean. She's mulling it over in her head. She's saying, this doesn't happen in our society. People don't just come and talk to people like me. What is going on here? But again, the angel comes and he reassures her and says, do not be afraid and reaffirms that she has a special goal, task. You are highly favored. So now we're going to move from who would an angel come to to ask the next question, what? is Gabriel going to talk to her about? What is he here visiting Mary for? Why did he come? As I stated earlier, we could probably think about this ahead and realize that she's going to be talking something about the Messiah. This is why Gabriel comes. This is why he shows up. And that leads us to another question that we'll delve into now. Who is this Messiah. What's his purpose? Why would he come to this world? Well, to say it short, the Messiah was the long-awaited, expected king of Israel. Now, when we're talking about kingship here, it's important to note that it's not just like one of the kings amongst others. This is the king. This is the king who would completely be superior to all of his predecessors before him in all ways. He would rule and he would reign with an eternal sort of authority. His authority would be unchallenged and he would share a special relationship with God like none other in human history. Psalm chapter 2 verses 7 and 9 says this, You are my son and today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like poverty. An internal rule, an all-encompassing rule. This means that I could go as far north as the North Pole and Jesus Christ has dominion there. Or we go all the way south to the South Pole and he is sovereign. We go to any mountain's peak. We go to any hidden island. We go to any place in this earth, even under a cave. And Jesus Christ is in charge. This is the type of rule that I'm talking about here. Not some kind of additional king in a little land called Israel. The king. 
Now, how would I expect the king to come into the world? I think I would expect him to come with all the pomp and the regality of any world-class king that you would expect. Mark Twain, in his classic work, The Prince and the Pauper, helped me to visualize just how our future king was brought into the world. Let me read an excerpt from that for you here. In the ancient city of London, on a certain autumn day, in the second quarter of the 16th century, a boy was born to a poor family, and his name was Canty, and they did not want him. But on the same day, another English child was born to a rich family of the name Tudor, who did want him. All of England wanted him, too. England had so longed for him and hoped for him and prayed God for him that now that he was really come, the people went nearly mad for joy. Mere acquaintances hugged and kissed each other and cried. Everyone took a holiday, high and low, rich and poor, feasted and danced and sang and got very mellow, and they kept this up for days and nights together. By day, London was a sight to see, with banners wavering from every balcony and housetop and splendid pageants marching along. By night, it was again a sight to see with its great bonfires in every corner and its troops of revelers making merry around them. There was no talk in all of England but for this new baby, Edward Tudor, Prince of Wales, who lay lapped in silks and satins, unconscious of all this fuss and not knowing that great lords and ladies were tending him and watching over him, and not caring either. But there was no talk about the other boy, Tom Canty. He was lapped in his poor rags, except among a family of paupers who had just come to trouble with his own presence. As we look at the birth of a future king, we would expect things of great celebration. It brings joy, expectation, hope. And yet, our text announces something that is quite unexpected again. The coming of the king, the ruler of this world, is going to feel to us more like Tom Canty, the pauper, than it is Edward, the prince. Let's keep looking in the scriptures, and we're going to see this expectation of the Messiah is declared to Mary. Verse 31, you will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. This is the king. There's no question about it. This is who Gabriel had come time and time again to talk about, who the prophets had talked about. This king would be named Jesus, which means the Lord saves. He has some sort of salvific work that he came to this world to to do in God's name. He would have a unique relationship with God, and his role in this world would be unique. Verse 31 talks about exalted claims of him. He is great. And there's no qualification attached to that greatness. It says that he would be son of the Most High. This is sonship language attached only to the king. There is no one else that fits this bill. And as we stated earlier, his relationship to God would be unmatched in every way. 
He would rule from David's throne in a way that David, his father, had not. Isaiah 9, 6-7 reads, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and the peace that there will be, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Already in Luke, we see that this Jesus has this exalted nature. There is something quite different about him. He was expected. But to a woman named Mary? In a town like Nazareth? The king? The universe? Like a common poor person? I never would have expected that. The passage moves forward as Mary asks a very legitimate question in verse 34. How will this be, Mary asks, since I am a virgin? That's the right question to ask. Mary is not speaking with a lack of faith here. She's not questioning God. It's just sheer wonder. I mean, how can a child come without a father? This hasn't occurred in history before. Naturally speaking, virgin conception is impossible. If we were looking at this in pure natural terms, I mean, any of us that has more than a stork-like understanding of how babies are made recognizes that it takes a mommy and a daddy for a baby to come. And yet, Gabriel has said something quite different, and Mary just doesn't simply have a category for understanding, whether in history or medically, for how Gabriel is announcing the birth of the Messiah. Well, Gabriel responds to this very legitimate question in three ways. In verse 35, we see that he talks of the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you so that the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. This angel announces that this child will be conceived without a father by the supernatural creative work of the Holy Spirit. And a little caveat here, um, this is not some soft form of euphemism. When you look at the myth that surrounded this culture of the day, there was divine and human sexual contact that took place where divine human children were made. But this is not what the scriptures is talking about here. We are talking about a birth that happens without paternal DNA. This would truly be a miraculous work of God. And it would make Jesus Christ completely unique in all of history. Gabriel goes on to add that there will be another sign taking place alongside Jesus' own miraculous conception. If you would look at verse 36, the sign is this. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be barren is now in her sixth month. 
She who was barren is now in her sixth month. It is a special sign of God. In fact, in the scriptures, there are only a few instances of a barren woman being given a child. We see this with Sarah when Isaac was born and Rebecca when Jacob and Esau came. We see this with Manoah's wife in Judges chapter 13 with Samson. We see this with Hannah and Samuel. And now we are seeing this with Elizabeth and John the Baptist. But Luke doesn't narrate this, this sign so, to say that Jesus and John are on equal footing. Okay? We have to understand that at this point. John's birth is a sign, and it serves as a sign. And while it is wonderful, it has precedence. Jesus' birth, virgin birth, is without precedence. It's never happened before. And so John works out his role even before he is born. He points to Jesus Christ, and he says, this Jesus that is coming after me is greater than I am. He's more important. He has a much bigger role in advancing God's kingdom than I ever could. With the coming of Jesus, the miraculous just seems to be piling up upon itself. There's the appearance of the angel not once but twice, the pronouncement of messianic hopes, the fulfillment of this child that is coming, a virgin conception that outclasses a barren conception. He is called great without qualification. And we also see in verse 35 that he is holy. And in the scripture, this epithet is only ascribed to the Lord God himself. How is all of this possible? Well, Gabriel helps us to understand that and reminds us of the nature of God in verse 37. For nothing will be impossible with God. That's the big point of this whole passage. If you look at this and you come away with nothing else, nothing will be impossible with God. We're not dealing with mere human pictures here. We are dealing with God pictures here. In the human terms, an angelic vision, a coming king, a virgin conception would make us step back and say, I was not expecting that. That's not possible. But when God is in the picture, and we do not live in a godless world, brothers and sisters in Christ, we live in a world where God is active, he is working where he is doing things that blow our minds, that would cause us all to step back and say, I was certainly not expecting that to happen, but is anything too hard for this God? Jeremiah 32, 17 talks about the nature of this God. It is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. He is the God who created the universe. He is the God who sustains the universe with his life-giving power. Is a virgin birth too hard for him? No. God himself later in Jeremiah 32, 27, says the same thing. I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? A God like this can send his anointed one into this world. He is not confined by the ways and the workings of men. He is the one who gives the law. He's the law giver. He is not confined and restricted to the laws of the universe. The pretenses of status and origin 
for a coming king means nothing to a God like this. He is just as pleased to display his majesty and his glory through the low things, the common things of this world. And in fact, many times he does this just to simply make the point that I am the Lord and nothing is impossible for me. I do not care about class. I don't care about status. I don't care about money. I don't care about accolades. I don't care about those things. Nothing is impossible for me and I will do what my sovereign sway says I will do. This is the Lord God that we are talking about here. He is the God of the impossible. And every Christmas that you reflect on the birth of Jesus Christ, you're reflecting on this point. Nothing is too hard for this God. And the beautiful thing of Christmas is that it, it, it directs, it Points, it forecasts our attention to an even greater reversal of expectations. This Messiah, Jesus Christ, countered all messianic hope. He was supposed to come and be a conquering king, but instead he came and he was a suffering servant. He was supposed to come and rule with an iron fist, and yet he meekly and humbly walked the landscape of Israel, even in the land of Galilee, which not a lot of people cared about. And he had this very simple but profound message. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And instead of living that full, rich life that you would expect the king to live and to have that death where everyone brought him out and promenaded through the streets with his body, he was nailed to a cross at a young age. He was betrayed He was beaten and he was ridiculed by jealous opposition. And with a last cry, as he hung on that cross, he cried out, it is finished. And he gave up his spirit. This simply goes against all expectations. And when the world looks at the nature of this Jesus that we serve and that we love, they simply just can't wrap their heads around it. One of my elders at our church in Osterville, his name's Chip, and uh, we've been working together for quite some time. Um, he's an amazing guy. He's been serving in youth ministry for 20 years as a, as a staff member at the church. And he and his wife recounted to me a time that they saw someone from the world just have their expectations of Jesus turned upside down. He and his wife Carla were in Connecticut, her hometown, and they were attending kind of like the Christmas pageant to end all Christmas pageants. I mean, they put everything into this thing. No expenses spared. And it ran 15 consecutive times throughout the Christmas season. It's kind of a big deal. Well, the beauty of a pageant of this nature is that it had this big attractive draw. It would bring people from all over the community, and they'd come, and they'd sit, and they would listen to the Christmas story. And this particular year that Chip recounted um, was kind of like the year that ended all years. I mean, they really knocked it out of the park, displaying the birth of Jesus Christ. And it led all the way up to his death on the cross. Chip remembers, as they were leaving, a woman was commenting to her husband, and she said, wasn't that just beautiful? I mean, the songs... 
and the music and the background and the sets and the designs. And that story was just so powerful. It's too bad that he had to die in the end. And you know, it is too bad that he had to die in the end if we're talking about, once again, merely human situations. But that's not what we're talking about here. We are talking about the God of the universe who did something very profound through his Messiah, Jesus Christ. You know, God knew that your biggest problem in this world has nothing to do with your 401k. He knew that you don't need the bigger house. He knew that your family, even though there's a lot of problems that go on and all families experience those problems, isn't the biggest issue that surrounds your life. He knew that your medical struggles, though for some of you might be many, isn't the biggest deal. The biggest deal in your life is your relationship with him and where you stand before him and whether or not you are in right relationship with him. And so the scriptures tell us in a passage like Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, that for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Every single one of us, me, you, had no relationship with God, no right to talk to God, no access to him. We had sinned against him. We had turned our backs on him. And you used to live in this way, and you followed the ways of this world, and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work, and those who are disobedient. You were more in relationship with Satan than you were with God. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. We were not in right relationship with him. We were, in fact, on the complete opposite end of the spectrum. Your standing with God was perilous. So Jesus didn't care about the expectations to be the king, to conquer Roman rule. Insignificant compared to the bigger problem. And in Luke chapter 19, he identified the true nature of the problem and why he had come. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus Christ, if he was just a man, and if he was just here to be a Messiah like we would want, it was too bad he died in the way that he did. But Rome wasn't our biggest problem, sin was. And God sent his son to the world to deal with that problem, not with the problems of our petty squabblings and our inability to have peace in this world. God wanted his holy standards satisfied through his son, Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 say this. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy. Now that's the character of God right there. He looks at a, a world that is lost and his heart throbs. And he wants to do something about it. Verse 5, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead, even when we were in the enemy camp, even when we had turned our backs on him. And it is by grace you have been saved. The scriptures teach us that Christ 
came and he died to do the impossible, to save a lost and dying world from their sins. And there is only one way to access, to stand in right relationship with God, to renew your relationship with him. And the scriptures say it's very simple. It's faith. It's looking at your own righteousness, your own merits, and saying, I am completely wicked, I am destitute, I am lost. There is nothing in and of myself that I could do to earn my standing before such a holy and a sovereign God. It's turning away from that and saying, I am no longer going to lead my life like the world does. I'm going to start following his program. And it's accepting Christ, placing your faith in him as God's provision for your sin. Romans 10, 9 says this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you, each one of you in this room today, we all would be saved. A relationship with God would be entirely different and it would all balance and weigh upon the shoulders of Jesus Christ himself, God's son. So how do we respond to such a great God who reverses our expectations, who sent his son not to be the king like we would have expected, but to do something far greater, to die in our place? I think Mary sets the pace. If you look at verse 38, after she hears Gabriel's description of God, she says this, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Mary had this worldview that every believer in Jesus Christ should have. If all those things that Gabriel had told her about God, especially that one phrase, for nothing will be impossible with God, what does that mean about our lives? What does that mean about our stance with God? It means everything. It means that there is nothing in your life that should take you by surprise when you know that God is in control. There's nothing that this world can throw at you. There's nothing that God can call you to, and you can look at God, and you can counterpoint him, and you can argue him, and you can say, that's too big for me. I just can't pull that off, God. There's no way. He is in control. In this Christmas season, as you reflect on the message of the coming of Jesus Christ and the way that God had turned every expectation upside down on itself, Recognize that your response to God should be like Mary's. I am your servant. My hand is open, Lord. I trust you with my life. Do with me as you will. I pray that that would be your heart disposition this Christmas. That you would be an empty vessel to him. And walk in the light of the truth that God is in control. And he turns all expectations upside down because he is the one calling the shots, not us. Let me close us with a word of prayer and thank God for the work that he's doing in this church. Father in heaven,